0: In the wake of COVID-19 lockdowns, travel restrictions, global economic and cultural turmoil, and increasing hostility toward Christianity, it might be easy for the average Christian to take a defensive posture and forget that the Church of Jesus Christ has been given a great commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. We should ask ourselves, where is our theology taking us? Our savior, Now ruling in the midst of his enemies, said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Therefore, true churches of Jesus Christ should at all times devote themselves to the cause of advancing his kingdom through missions and church planting. But how should these things be done? We stand amidst the wreckage of a century full of the spread of evangelical pragmatism and false doctrines which were often championed by armies of churchless pioneer missionaries and parachurch organizations as a reformed baptist we desire to return to simple obedience to jesus christ in the word of god christians must seek to accomplish the great commission in the way that he commanded local churches must lead the way we hope you can join us for the first annual covenant conference in louisville kentucky taking place on march 17th through the 19th 2022. we will hear from paul washer tom nettles sam waldron and john miller who will encourage us both to think biblically about the practice of missions and church planning and to commit ourselves afresh to these vital responsibilities given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. To learn more or register today, visit covcon.org. That's covcon.org. You are listening to Preaching and Teaching on the Man of God Network of podcasts. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry.
1: If you take your Bibles now and turn with me to Psalm 74, this is found on page 486 in the Pew Bible. This psalm, is part of Book 3 of the Psalter. You remember that the Psalter is divided into five books, Book 3 being that section from Psalm 73 through Psalm 89. You can think of it like a set of 17 songs that are related to the period of Israel and Judah's exile. These are psalms, then, that are expressive of the grief, the perplexity, and also the faith, hope, and longings for this period of national and seemingly spiritual disaster for God's people. If you were to take these 17 songs and make it into an album, you could entitle the album Devastation. You may remember the very first psalm in this collection, Psalm 73, as an individual lament by Asaph as he looks out and sees the wicked prospering and yet God's people suffering but as we come to the next psalm, Psalm 74, what we hear is not a soloist, but a choir. Indeed, the whole congregation of God's people joining their voices together in a corporate lament at their devastating loss as they together look to the Lord. So follow along with me as I read the whole of this psalm. A maskil of Asaph. O God... Why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in the forest of trees, and all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand, take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them? Yet God, my King, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth, You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waves. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave them as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. Amen. Let's pray together again. Our great and glorious God, as we come to your word and the preaching of your word, We need desperately the help of your spirit, both in its exposition and in our understanding. Illuminate our hearts and minds. We echo the prayer of the psalmist when he said, Teach us your way, O Lord, that we may walk in your truth. Unite our hearts to fear your name. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as Christmas approaches it is certainly inevitable that the minds of children, and dare I say, even adults, turn towards gifts. What presents will I receive? What's inside that box with my name on it under the tree? And we can think about a myriad of possible gifts that we might receive in just a few short days. But let me ask you, have you ever thought about the gift of biblical lamentation? As one author states, lament can be defined as a loud cry, a howl, or a passionate expression of grief. However, in the Bible, lament is more than sorrow or talking about sadness. It's more than walking through the stages of grief. Lament is prayer in pain that leads to trust. Biblical lament is prayer in pain that leads to trust? Consider with me for a few moments how you have responded in your life when something difficult or devastating has occurred. When you experience great loss or difficulty, how have you responded? What emotions have you felt? Anger, rage, confusion, or hurt, fear, Anxiety, a desire to escape, even the feelings that you are experiencing? And how do you go to God at such times? What can you say? How do you even pray when such things occur? Sadly, much of modern Christianity and contemporary songs that churches sing do not help us in this area. Because there is so little biblical lament. One author surveyed songs, um, contemporary Christian songs from 2016 and 2017, and found that less than 5% had any theme or mention of lamenting. When the book of Psalms is made up of one-third laments, it's quite a different proportion and this is where Psalms like this psalm, Psalm 74, are such a gift to us. Notice the ascription to this psalm it's a masculine. It's a word that means to, to make wise, prudent, or skillful. And this psalm then teaches us how wisely and skillfully to go to God in times of disaster and loss. It's a gift. A gift from the Lord to teach us, to guide us, to learn how to lament in such a way that is a ballast to our souls in the midst of the suffering and hardship that we undergo. So as we open up this psalm, what you'll see is that there are actually three main parts in this prayer. And all three parts are actually initially given to us in the first three verses, And then they are expanded upon in each of the following or corresponding sections below. So I invite you to come and let us unwrap this gift and learn to lament by listening to this prayer of God's people. And each of these three parts I've kind of described as a petition or a lament. And the first is this, come, O God, and listen to our cries of lamentation. Come, O God, and listen to our cries of lamentation. This is what we see in verse 1, and then it's further expanded in verses 4 to 11. Listen to this initial lamentation in first verse 1 again. O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? The congregation twice in this first verse ask God, "Why?" It's an expression not only of their deep distress, but also of their real perplexity, the tension that they feel. Because on the one hand, they are the sheep of God's pasture. Reminds us of that most well-known of all Psalms, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. You see, God was the shepherd of his people, his holy nation, those whom he called his treasured possession, those whom he had gathered together and taken as his own sheep and brought to the green pastures of his promised land. And yet, this same verse says that God has cast them off. From the perspective of God's people, it seems as though this Casting off is forever. They feel the anger of the Lord continuing to smoke and to smolder against them as though it will never end. It's all unrelenting. Why, O God, would you reject us if we are the sheep of your pasture? That's the perplexity that they feel. God's people feel rejected and abandoned by God. But why? Why do they feel this way? And this is where we need to linger upon this lament by considering the expansion in verses 4 to 11. And there we see that God's people feel cast off, first of all, because of what they have seen and what they have experienced. You get the sense of it even from this first Verse in the section, verse 4 Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. Verse 7 They set your sanctuary on fire. This is none other than the destruction of Jerusalem by the enemies of God, the Babylonians, in 586 BC. And in particular, the focus of these verses is on the destruction of the temple. A narrative description of what happened can be found in places like 2 Kings chapter 25 or also in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Let's read a portion of, of that description, the narrative description, after speaking about how King Zedekiah uh, rebelled against the Lord and the Lord sent many messengers, prophets to his people who refused to listen. It says in verse 17 of 2 Chronicles 36, Therefore God brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. It was a narrative description of what took place. But here in Psalm 74, what we have is a poetic description from the perspective of God's lamenting people. And you can see how they describe the Babylonians with poetic language. They describe them as those who were savage beasts. You notice again the language of verse 4, your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. You can see even in verse 19, it speaks about them as wild beasts. They're savages in that way. They're also described as, we could say, wild barbarians. In verse 5 and verse 6, there are those who are swinging axes wildly and using hatchets and hammers to break down and then ultimately to burn to the ground. In verse 7, the very temple of God. This lamentation, this corporate lamentation even describes uh, the inward, inner thinking of the Babylonians, how they are ruthless to the core of their being. In verse 8, they said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. And the proof of this is found in the fact that not only did they seek to destroy the temple, but any meeting place of God, altar, or perhaps even a synagogue left in the land they sought to destroy, to raise to the ground. You notice how they describe not only their enemies but also that which was destroyed, the temple. The word temple is not used in this section. What we find is words like the sanctuary. Um, In verse 7, the sanctuary means a holy place. But it's also described in verse 4 as the meeting place. It's a reminder of the... The tabernacle, you remember, was first called the Tent of Meeting, and it's the place where the Lord would meet with his people in his special presence, coming to bless, to instruct, to receive the praises of his people. It's the meeting place between God and man. It's also called there in verse 7, the dwelling place of your name, of God's name. You may remember back on the plains of Moab as Moses is there renewing the covenant with that second generation out of Egypt. Part of his instructions were this, that when they entered into the promised land, that the Lord would tell them the place that he would choose to make his name dwell there. And there they would bring burnt offerings and sacrifices. Later when Solomon was preparing to build that temple, he called it the house for God's name. Remember the name of God, that which represents who he is in all his fullness as Yahweh, the covenant Lord, as the Almighty, as El Shaddai, and all the different names of God that show forth his greatness, his power, his love, who he is for his people. And the temple, then, is that place to worship God, the place of God's special presence with his people. But now, all that's left after the Babylonians have come is ruins. And all that they can see are the Babylonians' signs for signs, he says in verse 4. It's most likely referring to their military standards, their banners The temple is burned to the ground and all you can see is poles with banners representing Babylon's might and conquest over Judah, over God's people. So you see, due to what they have seen, due to what they've gone through, God's people feel abandoned by God. Yet that's not all. It's not just what they have seen and experienced, but it's also what they've not seen or experienced that has caused them to feel rejected. Notice verse 9, we do not see our signs. In other words, there aren't any of their own signs. That is signs of God's favor in their midst, only signs of being conquered by Babylon. What is or What are some of those signs? Well, one of those signs of God's favor is having prophets in their midst that speak the word of the Lord to them. That's one of the things they do not have any longer, it says there in verse 9. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. Earlier in that passage in 2 Chronicles 36 that describes this in a narrative way, it says that before the Lord sent the Babylonians to destroy, it says the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, his prophets, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Sign of God's favor upon a people is for them to hear God speak to them through his messengers, through his prophets, through his preachers. But now, now they're without the ministry of the prophets to teach and to guide them. At this point, those who are still in the land would be without Jeremiah. He's been taken down to Egypt. Ezekiel's already gone in the promised, or in in exile at this point. And if there were any others who were prophets among them, or who claimed to be prophets, the book of Lamentations, which is a lament, again, for the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, says this, her prophets find no vision from the Lord. God is not speaking through them at this time. And that's why they say there's none to tell them how long will this situation be. And that's why they continue to cry out and lament, How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? They're in anguish. Of course, the other thing that they have not seen or experienced at this point for this particular situation is God acting to destroy the enemy. So they lament once again, and cry out in verse 11, why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? The image and poetry of God's power, it's the image that they give is that God is keeping his hand folded away in his garment, and he's not using his power to defeat the enemy, and they're saying, take it out. Destroy them, Lord. But that's not what they've seen. That's not what they've heard. That's not what they've experienced. And so they feel abandoned. Rejected by God. What are some of the lessons then that we can learn from this portion of this lament? The first lesson is this, that it's not wrong for us to come to God in our own perplexity and distress. And to even ask the question, why? Or how long, O Lord? Robert Godfrey in his comments on this psalm says... This questioning by the psalmist stands against the advice offered today by some well-meaning Christians who say that we should never ask why. Such advisors voice a kind of Christian stoicism, teaching that we must just grin and bear it. The psalmist, by contrast, gives strong expression to the depths of his emotions. Indeed, God, by the example of the psalmist, encourages his people to a refreshing honesty in prayer, including honesty in expressing our emotions. Fear, anger, frustration, all are emotions that we find poured out to God in the Psalter. So this lesson that we learn is that we are even encouraged by God to come to him in our distress. For such lament before God is itself an act of faith and a recognition of the sovereignty of our God to hear and even to act and in your coming, you find that he is the one to whom you can pour out all your heart to. You can come and lament the destruction that you see around you in our culture. You can lament the desecration of all that is holy that occurs. You can lament the disregard for God and for those made in his image that happens each day through abortion and murder. You can lament the disinterest that people have in worshiping the one true and living God. And you can even cry out like the martyrs under the altar in Revelation 6:10, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long, O Lord, before the wicked are punished? How long before justice is experienced, you can lament with God's people. Let me also say this you can lament before God even in this Christmas season. A time which for many is not full of cheer, but is actually filled with sadness for a variety of reasons. It could be sadness at the memory of lost loved ones who will not be with you this Christmas. Sadness or loneliness from the reality of broken family relationships that you feel more keenly when you gather together or when you ought to be or would like to be gathering together. Or the struggle of physical or financial trials that you keenly feel that you didn't have at Christmases prior. This psalm teaches us that we can lament We can lament, like we sang earlier in the first verse of that hymn, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. O come, O God, and listen to the cries of our lamentation. The second aspect of this lament is this, come, O God and remember your redemptive acts of old. Come, O God, and remember your redemptive acts of old. This is what we see in verse 2, and which is expanded upon in verses 12 to 17. I'll we'll listen to this initial plea in verse 2 again. Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion where you have dwelt. God's people are calling upon him to remember, to remember two things. One, his people. Remember us, your people whom you've purchased and whom you've redeemed to be your heritage. But also, Lord, remember your place, the place that you've chosen to dwell, Mount Zion. And in this plea to remember, if you listen carefully, you can hear the echoes of another song. Echoes of the song of Moses. For these very same words are found there in Exodus chapter 15 when they're beside the Red Sea. Listen to some of these echoes. Exodus 15, verse 13, Moses saying, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. Or verse 16, Terror and dread fall upon your enemies because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. And then the conclusion or climax of the song comes to verse 17 and says, you, O Lord, will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Your echoes of God's redemptive work in the Exodus, which was the greatest redemptive act of God in the Old Covenant, in which God's people are calling God to remember these things. No, they're not calling Him to remember because God's forgotten, as though He could actually forget anything. But it's because they're calling upon God to remember in such a way that God would act. To remember in such a way that he would keep his promises, keep his covenant with his people. This is the same kind of thing in language that we see even when God's people were lamenting in Egypt before the exodus. Exodus chapter 2 verse 23 and 24 says this, During those days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. What does it mean that he remembered his covenant? Well, the very next thing we read in Exodus chapter 3 is God acting by coming to Moses in the burning bush to call the one who will lead his people out of Egypt. We need to recognize that this prayer is not only a call for God to remember, but it's also for God's people to remember in the midst of their lament who God is and what he has done. We can see this more clearly when we linger upon this prayer by considering the expansion of it in verses 12 to 17. You notice when we come to verse 12, it says, Yet God my King is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. It turns from a corporate voice to a single voice that now takes the lead in singing, but he is certainly speaking on behalf of and as a representative of all God's people. Verse 12 is a turning point in this lament. After crying out, how long and why, O God? In verses 10 and 11, the psalmist says, yet, God, my king is from all of old. You hear how it's a personal confession of faith. God, my king, not just the king but he belongs to me and I belong to him. He's my king. And he's the one who has been king from of old. And the implication is this, that he's still king. And he's still sovereignly working salvation in the midst of the earth. And so it's a reminder to God's people that God is king. This soloist, in that sense, is reminding the rest of the congregation, remember who your God is. He's the sovereign king over his people, who he saved from of old. And verses 13 to 15, then, in this section, poetically speak of God's saving acts in the Exodus. Over and over, he speaks of what you have done, O God. And you notice the language How it describes what occurs in the Exodus and after. You divided the sea by your might. What's that? But God's dividing the Red Sea in Exodus 14. You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan and you gave them as food for the creatures of the wilderness. In poetic language, this is speaking of Pharaoh and his army as a sea monster and Leviathan who have been destroyed in their bodies, food for the birds after the sea has closed, closed over them. And then it goes on and says, you split open springs and brooks in verse 15. and Now it moves to Exodus 17 as they're wandering in the wilderness and God provides for them water from the rock. And then further, you dried up ever-flowing streams, which speaks of the promised land. Remember how they entered the promised land? It was by God drying up the Jordan River that they may cross over and enter into it. Before they entered, of course, you remember God had brought his people to Mount Sinai and he covenanted with them formally as a nation. And Moses says in Deuteronomy 33, verse 5, that it's there at Mount Sinai that the Lord became king in Jeshurun. He's king over his people. But the soloist is reminding God's people, not only is he king over his people, But he's also the sovereign king over all of creation. It expands out in verses 16 and 17 and speaks of day and night, heavenly lights, the sun, boundaries, summer and winter, language of creation. God in his omnipotence as creator is the faithful one to sustain all of these things. Behind it, it's a reminder of God's not only creative power, but also his covenant promise not only with Noah, but with all of creation after the flood, when he said this, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Why does the psalmist bring that up here at this place to speak about God's sovereign rule over all creation? Because the God who is the all-powerful and faithful king over all creation Is the same God, then, who has all power to be faithful to deliver his people as the king over his people? The prophet Jeremiah makes this same connection in Jeremiah 33 when he says this, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne in my covenant with the Levitical priest and my ministers. What's the point? The point is this. Because God's covenant with creation cannot be broken, certainly his covenant with David will not be broken. He will be faithful. Let us learn the lessons from this petition. What is the lesson? That in the midst of our laments, We are to call upon God to remember, even as we remember, that God is our sovereign and faithful King. This side of the Incarnation, we can recall God's greater and greatest act of redemption through the coming of his Son to live, to die, and to be raised for us and for our salvation And so we can bring that reality, Lord, you have redeemed us by the blood of your son when we bring our petitions to him. But not only that, you can also, as an individual Christian, call to mind the ways that God redeemed you, the way in which he worked in your particular life, and bring those things before God as part of of your petitions, as part of your lamentations. Lord, you brought your word. You regenerated my soul. Not only that, we can call to mind all that God has done for us as a church, corporately, to remember his power and his faithfulness. I don't know how many of you realized that this past Thursday was the 70th anniversary of our church. It was December 9th, 1951, that was the first gathering of this congregation. Think of those seven decades. All that God has done. His faithfulness to this particular local church and how we can bring those realities from our own experience, the experience of this church before God, even in our lamentations, saying, Remember, O God, your favor that you poured out upon us, and do it again. As part of your lament, remember the mighty acts of God, your King. Just like we sang in that Christmas hymn, in verse 2, O come, O come, Emmanuel, thou Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times didst give the law in cloud and majesty and all. You see what the hymn writer's doing there. thinking back on what God has done in the past in redeeming his people and bringing them to Mount Sinai. Come, O God, and remember your redemptive acts of old. Well, the last Petition we can say is this Come, O God, and deliver your people for your name's sake. Come, O God, and deliver your people for your name's sake. This is what we find in verse three, and then expanded upon in verses eighteen to twenty-three. Listen then to the initial plea again in verse three. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. This plea is actually a call to action. That language, direct your steps, could also be translated, step lively, God. Or to put it in a vernacular, perhaps slightly irreverently, don't drag your feet, God, but get on with it. Act on behalf of your great name. We see this call for God to act for the sake of his name more clearly when we linger upon this prayer by considering the expansion of it in verses 18 to 23. Why should he act? First, there's a call to act because God's name is reviled by his enemies. That's the sense we get in verse 3, and that's also repeated again. You see at verse 18, Remember this, O Lord, how your enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Or in verse 22, Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you which goes up continually. It's a call for God to remember, to remember, to not forget. To remember what? The continual clamor and noise of the enemy that scoffs, that reviles the name of God, saying, we've conquered his people. He's no real God. Our gods are more powerful than he is. It's calling upon God to remember the scoffing. Why? So that God would act. That's the heart of the petition there in verse 22. Arise, O God, and defend your cause. It's a reminder of what Moses would say whenever God's people would break camp while they're there in the wilderness and the Ark of the Covenant would go before and Moses would say, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. It's recognition that God is the king who goes before and fights for his people for his own name's sake. But second, there's also a call for God to act that God's name would be praised by his people. Praised for his deliverance of them, his faithfulness to them. You see this in verses 19 and 21. Do not deliver the soul of your dove. the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Verse 21, let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. God's people are called a dove here. It's, It's language that we find in the Song of Solomon for the beloved. God's people are his beloved bride. And here they're in a situation where they're called the downtrodden, the poor and the needy. And they're saying deliver us, act, that we might praise your great name. And truly that he would be praised by all people is their desire. Why? Because he's a God who's faithful. Faithful to all of his covenant promises. And that's where you get to the real heart of their petition here in verse 20. Have regard for the covenant. For the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Have regard for the covenant covenant. This request for God to have regard for the covenant in one sense is reflective of God's people's attitude of repentance for their sins against God. For the reality is they know that God has brought all this disaster upon them and upon Jerusalem and the temple because of their sins against him, breaking the covenant, and how God is bringing the promised covenant curses upon them. But this faithful remnant also knows what the covenant says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, that while they're in exile in other nations, if they return to the Lord with all their heart, the Lord will restore their fortunes and in mercy gather them together again into the land. And so they are calling upon God to act, to be faithful to his covenant promises for the sake of his great name. What are the lessons, then, that we learn from this final petition? The great lesson is this, that there is no greater petition than to call upon God to act for the sake of his own name. As he says to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 48, verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. We see this linking between a call to save and the honor and glory of God's name in many petitions to deliver and to save in the psalm. Psalm 106 verse 47 says, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. In our laments then, beloved, let us plead with God to deliver us in the midst of our distress, for the sake of His name, to sing like we sang earlier, verse three of that hymn, "O come, thou rod of Jesse, free, thine own from Satan's tyranny, from depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory o'er the grave." Beloved God has responded to the lament of His people in Psalm 74. He has acted his work of salvation in the midst of the earth. He's answered the lament of the hymn that we sang. The rod of Jesse has come to set us free. Jesus, the Son of God, has entered our world as the God-man in the incarnation over 2,000 years ago. And he enacted for us a better covenant than the old covenant with better and greater promises The new covenant, covenant that redeems us not merely from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to sin and death. And Jesus has promised that he is coming again. You remember those words from the upper room discourse in John 14 In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. So, beloved, we can sing confidently in our lament even the final verse of that hymn. O come, thou key of David, come, and open wide our heavenly home." Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. Rejoice! Rejoice! Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who gives good gifts to your people. And you've given to us the greatest of gifts in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. salvation that none can take from us. But Lord, we also thank you that you give us gifts like Psalm 74 and the gift of biblical lament. Help us to be a people who know how to lament who heed this instruction that we may pray in our pain and be led to trust you all the more to the praise and honor and glory of your
0: name. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.